much, Colleen, for reading that Bible passage. Good morning once again. Um, can I just get a quick gauge of the energy level in the room? How are your concentration, how's your concentration doing? Is everybody up for a challenge this morning? Yeah, I, one person is up for a challenge this morning. Um, are you excited about Christmas? Are you feeling prepared? Hands up if you're feeling prepared. Two people, of three people are feeling, feeling prepared. Um, we've got a challenge this morning because, uh, as many of you know, we've been, under, we've been working our way through the letter of James in the New Testament over the past two months. But we've not had an installment in our sermon series on the letter of James for the past two weeks. So it's three weeks since the last one. And we've got an enormous chunk to get through. But if you're up for a challenge, then I want to see whether in the next 25 minutes we can get through James chapter 4 and the first half of James chapter 5, and do so in such a way that leaves us with something helpful as we go into this Christmas season, helpful to us in how we live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. Is that okay? One person said yes, but I've got the microphone. Um, what do we know about the letter of James so far? We know that James was an important apostle in the early church. He was a brother of Jesus. He was described by St. Paul as a pillar of the church and was one of the leaders of the church when St. Paul went to visit them in Jerusalem. And there was a special council recorded in Acts chapter 15. Uh, we know that um, the church at the very beginning, the first followers of Jesus Christ were Jewish followers of Jesus Christ. And uh, that James himself, like Jesus, was raised as a good and faithful Jewish follower. And so in the letter of James, there are lots of themes which pick up on the sort of Jewish origins of the Christian faith. And uh, so James draws upon language of the law, ideas about Moses, ideas about God the Father, um, that are common to his Jewish Christian community. We know that he's writing quite early on. His letter is probably one of the earliest letters that we have in the New Testament. And he's writing to a dispersed group of followers of Jesus. They've been scattered throughout the uh, region by probably the persecution that originated in the stoning of Stephen. That's reported in Acts chapter 6. So in our minds, if we want to get our head around it, we might want to imagine something like the scenario in Syria or Iraq today, where over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen horrendous conflict and many people have fled the nation. And you might want to just in your minds imagine that James is sat there still in Jerusalem, having seen all of the early Christian community, the early, early followers of Jesus, fleeing and spreading throughout the region so that they don't lose their lives and finding themselves really uh, embattled and struggling to survive. And he writes these, this letter to encourage, counsel and support them where they are. One of the biggest temptations that the early followers of Jesus faced is just to kind of blend into the background, to make their following of Jesus something they do in private. That was all the rage in Greco-Roman culture in the first century. There were all kinds of mystery cults where you did weird stuff with your friends in a private room in your home, but it made no difference the way you lived in public. Out in public, you still worshipped the emperor, you still did everything that was expected in terms of Greco-Roman society. And James is saying, no, Christians cannot live like that. Christian faith involves a whole new identity, a new way of living in the public square. It's a faith that flowers, if it's to be any faith at all. Faith without works, faith without the identifying marks of its faith, is dead. And 
in chapter 4 and chapter 5, he's going to address some more of the problems that beset the first followers of Jesus, and I think problems and challenges that still beset us. Now, I've been starting to do some of the preparation for Christmas in the vicarage, in our household, and uh, earlier this week we sat and worked on our meal plan for what we're going to be eating on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and uh, booking all of the online shopping. And it got me perusing some of the recipes that we plan on uh, cooking. And I'm going to use that as an analogy today for us. I think that in James chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, he gives us a recipe for life. A recipe for life. And I want to highlight four ingredients for us that all contribute to a recipe for life. So the first ingredient that James offers us is this, that we reflect. We reflect on our selfish desires. James invites his audience to consider why it is that there are still fights and quarrels between them. Look at page 1215, that's the passage we're looking at. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Question, what causes them? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now, it's easy to have a romanticized view of the early church, particularly when we're drawing upon Acts chapter 2, that, you know, that passage about everybody, all the believers living together and sharing all of their possessions and holding everything in common. But actually, there was plenty of conflict in the early church. In the church in Corinth, there were church factions based on who had baptized who and different names. The church in Philippi had two women who couldn't get along, and it was so severe, this conflict, that Paul names them and calls them out. Uh, In Galatians, in chapter 5, Paul writes to them not to bite and devour each other anymore. And in his letter to the Ephesians, there was such a strong emphasis on unity that it probably implies there was some disunity that needed to be corrected and addressed. Churches throughout the ages have always struggled with conflict and division. Why? Well, it's because they're not museums for the saints, but hospitals for sinners. They're not places where perfect people put their lives on display. They're places where broken people have their lives healed and transformed. That's what the church is. And James says that the source of conflict and division amongst the believers is the selfish desires within each of us. Verses 1 and 2. What causes fights and quarrels? Answer, they come from your desires that battle within you. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet because you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. Now here, he seems to be building on that verse in chapter 3, verse 14, where he warns the followers of Jesus against harboring bitter envy and selfish ambition. That's 3, verse 14. Now it seems to me that bitter envy and selfish ambition are the foundation stones of a consumer capitalist society right? So you can see how if we're going to live as Christians, we're going to have to really swim against the stream. In every dispute, conflict, or broken relationship, there is always something that we can learn about ourselves if we are willing to take time to reflect. There is always some element of our own fallen desire or our own selfish ambition, which is at work in any situation. So we may be trying to vindicate ourselves in some kind of dispute or disagreement because we care about our reputation. Or we might be refusing to see an issue from somebody else's point of view 
because to do so would make us more generous towards them, and we don't really feel like being generous towards them. We want to bolster our own position. Sometimes it's our own desire for our peace which leads us into conflict with others. It's, it's our own desire to have everything sort of settled and in order in our own lives that leads us into conflict or dispute with others. James is writing to people who find themselves in a variety of trials because they've been forced from their homelands because of this persecution. We, we know that. Now, when we're in difficult circumstances, our desires for peace, for well-being, for good relationships, for success are quite normal. We, we might desire those things, and they may not be met by our immediate circumstances because life can be tough. And so we desire, we covet, we envy what we cannot have and what we cannot obtain. And the solution sometimes is to sort of to, to seek to destroy what others have or to, or, or to try and covet it or fight others for things. Now, when James mentions how the believers are killing and coveting, I think that he is dealing with something more than literal murder. And I think it's something for us more than literal murder. I think he's drawing upon Jesus' language uh, in the Sermon on the Mount about murdering people by having anger in our hearts towards them. Remember how Jesus uh, says that even when we have anger in our hearts, it's as though we have killed another. Our envy of others, one commentator writes, can lead us to kill our relationship with them, to gossip about them to others in an effort to kill their reputation, or simply to kill our feelings towards them because we are so unhappy that they have it better than we do. It is impossible to be peaceful and content when envy and jealousy are at work in us. And conversely, I might say, when we want to tackle envy or self-pity, we need to cultivate thankfulness, contentment for what we have, for what God has given us. Sometimes we have conflicting desires even within ourselves, which can be confusing for others. Same commentator writes this, our desire for both intimacy and independence from others can lead us to send mixed messages because we are mixed ourselves as to exactly what we want from this or that relationship. Do you recognize that? That resonated with me. Sometimes we want intimacy with other people, but we also want independence from them. And we can even get confused ourselves as to what we want the most. And we can send out mixed messages, mixed signal. The people that we love the most, that we want to have an intimate relationship with, we also find ourselves resenting sometimes when we want some more space away from them. James comments on how these confused desires can lead us to come to God himself with false motives. So he says at verse 3, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Even when we go to God asking for the things we think we need, we sometimes do so with mixed motives. I think that this passage confronts us with that brutal reality that is expressed in Jeremiah 17 verse 9 where it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It's a pretty grim portrait of the human heart, isn't it? 
But the good news is that Jesus does understand the condition of our hearts and can heal us. But we must come to him seeking heart surgery. Remember how God promises in Ezekiel that he'll take from us our heart of stone and give to us a heart of flesh. If we want to learn how to truly reflect on our lives and to ask God to order our desires, we can use the prayer of Psalm 139. At the end of Psalm 139, it says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See if there is any offensive way in me. It's a key prayer of reflective practice. God, search me. Reveal myself to me and heal me, change me. So the first ingredient in the recipe for life that James gives to us is that we reflect. We reflect on our lives. Secondly, we repent and come near to God. James paints a vivid picture about which direction we're traveling in. He questions, are we friends with God or are we friends with the world? And he says, you can't be both. And by the world, he means all that is opposed to God. He means our selfish ambition, our pride, and our envy. This is different from the neighbor love that Jesus commands. Remember, Jesus says the greatest commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the greatest commandment is that we love our neighbor as ourselves. He says the second is the same as the first. They're both the greatest. So love God and love your neighbor. Neighbor love, as commanded by Jesus, is the proper approach that we have to the world around us. But what James is saying is that there's a kind of friendship with the world, the world in inverted commas, which is about going the way of selfish ambition, pride, enmity, envy, rivalry, competition, all of those things. And he says you cannot do both. If you, if you choose friendship with that kind of world, you will separate yourself from God. But repentance will restore us to relationship with God. And repentance, James says, begins not with us, but with God. Now, the translation is complex in verse 5. The Bible we have here says, do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? It's a little more clear in the NRSV translation, which says, do you suppose that it is for nothing that the Scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God yearns jealously. Our God is a jealous God. But we must understand that properly because jealousy is not the same as envy. We often think it is, but they're not. They're different things. Envy is the improper desire to possess that which properly belongs to others. Envy is the desire to possess that which belongs properly to others. Jealousy is the proper desire to protect that which is properly given into our care and our charge. You see, envy is about wanting, desiring to possess what somebody else has. That's covetousness. Jealousy is about protecting that which is entrusted to your care. So I can be jealous for my children because God has entrusted them to my care and, and into my protection. I want to protect them from all that would do them harm. God is jealous for us because he wants to protect us from all that would do us harm. God is jealous for us because he has placed his spirit in us, 
We are made in his image and we reflect his glory. And because God cares about his image and his glory, he wants to protect it in us. So God doesn't leave us where we are, consumed by these conflicting desires that we've heard about already in James. God makes the first step. He gives us grace. What does grace do? Well, grace first opposes the proud. The first work of God's grace is to convict us of our sin, to open our eyes, to reveal to us how we are. That's why John chapter 1 talks about the grace of the law given through Moses and then the grace given through Jesus. Grace upon grace. The grace of the law to convict us of our sin. The grace of Jesus to forgive us. The grace of God to address us and call us to repentance. And the grace to forgive, transform, and heal. It's the grace of God that reveals our sinfulness and offers us forgiveness in Jesus. And verse 8 invites us to respond to this first grace by coming near to God. There it is. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We only wash our hands because we have seen by God's grace that they're dirty and because God has provided us with a basin and water adequate for the washing. Verse 9 seems terribly depressing. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Merry Christmas. There you are. There's, there's, there's a Christmas message. But I think it's its position in that passage that is vital to our understanding. It's part of the process of repentance. That we reject the naive and the shallow laughter and joy and, and that we grieve over our own sinfulness. But in doing so, in mourning and grieving our own sinfulness, in praying that prayer of reflection from Psalm 139, test me and search my heart, see if there's any offensive way in me. In coming to God to be washed, we humble ourselves and we are lifted up. That's what it says in verse 10. Humble yourselves and he will lift you up. It's a promise. Let's remember that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So James can't be rejecting that kind of joy. I think it's rather that he invites us to discover a joy in Christ that is deeper than any temporary and fleeting joy we might hope to find in the world around us. So the first ingredient in the recipe for life that James gives us is that we reflect on our selfish desires. The second ingredient is that we repent. The third is that we resist joining in the evil in the world. Now, two weeks ago, we had the celebration of baptisms and confirmations. And in the liturgy, we are invited to reject the world, the flesh, and the devil. This threefold rejection recognizes that all evil and opposition to God is located in three places. It's around us in the pattern of living in the world. It's within us in our selfish desires. And it's beyond us in the spiritual realm, affecting both the world and our inner lives through the temptation to cultivate evil and to turn from God. And James addresses each of these three things. He's already talked about our selfish desires, the flesh, if you like. And in verse 7, he urges us to resist the devil with the promise that the devil will flee from us when we're submitted to God. But now he addresses some common forms of evil in the world around us that we must resist. Firstly, he 
calls us to resist the evil of slander. Now, I think here that James has a view of slander which is about declaring others to be in the wrong. And this is a form of judgment. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. What he's doing in that verse is instead of offering this complex idea that we are displacing the law given through Moses, the law given by God, and we are placing ourselves in the seat of judgment when we slander a brother, when we declare somebody else to be in the wrong, we are making ourselves the judge. He reminds us that there is only one true lawgiver and judge. Verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one able to save and destroy. And indeed, in chapter 5, verse 9, as we'll come to in a little while, the judge is standing at the door, he says. He's close. Jesus, the judge, is near us. I don't think this means that we can't take a view on an issue. I don't think it means we're not allowed to make some kind of discerning, uh, wise pronouncements about things. And of course, in 1 Timothy, we're reminded that Scripture is a tool for uh, training, developing in righteousness, correcting, rebuking, rebutting false teaching. But it reminds ourselves that we cannot set ourselves up as judge and jury over our neighbors, friends, family, or work colleagues. We must be generous in our view of others. We must remove the log from our own eyes before we tackle the speck in the eyes of others. Judge not lest you be judged, says Jesus. Slander is a form of judgment which does not appeal to God's judgment, but rather seeks for ourselves to take up the wig and the gavel and become judge ourselves. So don't succumb to slander, the temptation to displace the judge and make yourself a judge. And don't succumb to the boastfulness of the world, the braggadocio of the world. I think he's attacking that, the hubris of the contemporary world. I don't think that James would have liked the TV show The Apprentice very much. Because in The Apprentice, all the candidates are invited to offer a confident appraisal of their own uh, prowess, their own abilities. I'm not sure he would have liked The X Factor very much for that matter. But there is certainly a way of being in the world, isn't there, which is kind of boastful and proud and confident about uh, my own success, which places my trust uh, in the fruits of my own labors, my own gifts and my own abilities. That boastfulness, James is saying, do not succumb to that, for it's what the Lord wills that matters. Look at verse 14. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. From the perspective of eternity, James is saying, all of this confidence and this hubris, this braggadocio, is nothing. Four years passes in the blink of an eye. Even eight passes in the blink of an eye. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. No boasting, no braggadocio. So resist slander, resist boasting, resist the domination of others. And James reserves some of his strongest words for the practice of those who use their wealth to oppress, dominate, exploit, and control. One of the reasons that this church is a fair trade church is, that it's because of our desire to have no part in the exploitative trade practices 
which do damage to vulnerable farmers and producers in other parts of the world. Similarly, we're part of the living wage campaign because we believe that all people should be paid a wage sufficient for the basics of life. We resist the ever-growing gap between rich and poor because the wealth of the rich is only enabled by exploitative work practices such as those described by James in verse 4. Look at these words. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. It's like God is inviting us to consider a new exodus, a great exodus in which all those who are enslaved and oppressed by injustice will be set free and will be delivered. And those who have exploited or oppressed or dominated them will be judged. Well, it's very easy to point the finger at others when we read that verse. The question is, in what way do we participate in those kind of practices? Can you embark upon a fair trade Christmas, a living wage Christmas? Can you think carefully about the ethics of how we live in the world, making sure that in our lives we're not contributing to the oppression, the exploitation of... uh, poor workers by rich rulers. We're called to resist these patterns of evil in the world where we see them, to take a stand and to be certain that our actions do not contribute to them. If we know that our practices are contributing to evil in the world, we must do all we can to change our lives. If we know that there is some good that we can do and should do and we do not do it, we sin, says James in 4 verse 17. Now imagine the world if we all took the little actions that we could. Imagine the world if we didn't simply shrug our shoulders and hope that somebody else fixes the problems. Imagine a world where everybody took responsibility and did what we can. I think we could have a more hopeful and a more generous and a more just society. So the third ingredient in our recipe for life is resist the evil in the world. Reflect on our selfish desires repent, resist the evil in the world, and finally renew our steadfast hope in the Lord. The key word in this passage, uh, verses 7 through 12, is patience. Patience derives from the same Latin root as the word passion, which has to do with suffering, being moved. To be impassable is to be unmoved and immovable. To be passionate is to be moved and affected by the world around you, to have your emotions stirred. To have compassion is to be moved or to suffer alongside others with suffering, compassion. To be patient is to extend this suffering over time, to be long-suffering. In other words, we are all waiting for a day when all things are renewed, when the new heavens and the new earth appear, when Jesus comes again as Lord and judge to put all things to rights, to bring justice on the earth. Now this is the real theme of the Advent season, that we look not just to the coming of Christ in history, not just remembering and recalling Jesus' birth in a stable in Bethlehem, but that we look to his coming at the very end of time to judge the living and the dead. And James invites us to wait patiently as a farmer waits for the crops planted to grow and bear fruit. We are to persevere, to be patient, to stand firm and not to grumble. What will sustain us in this 
patient waiting? What will renew us in steadfast hope? Well, for James, it is the sure and certain knowledge that the Lord's coming is near. That's verse 8. And again in verse 11, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. When we remember those things, that the, the Lord's coming is near, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, it will renew our steadfast hope. And the message of hope for us this day is that the Lord's coming is not just about the final return of Christ at the end of time, but also that by his Spirit he comes near to us today. He's present with us even now as we meet, as we reflect, as we gather, as we worship. We come near to him in worship, in prayer, and he comes near to us. So if there is a recipe for life this Christmas, it's that we reflect. It's that we repent and come near to God. It's that we resist the evil in the world and that we are renewed in steadfast hope by the Spirit of God. So that we may take hold of that same sure and certain hope that James expresses in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you like to stand and let's just pray that God would renew us in that. just want to invite you to, um, it's been a kind of marathon epic uh, race through James 4 and 5, but let's just take a moment of silence and fix our eyes at the eyes of our hearts on Jesus.